This is the Sibling Library Podcast. You will know when to start listening when you hear the chimes ring like this. Let's begin now. Welcome everyone to Sibling Library. I have the pleasure of hosting you today. My name is Katie and I'm joined by my two sisters, Megan and Julia. Hello both of Yo. you. Yo. Yo. Hi. Hey, yo. <laughs> I'm excited to be here with the two of you and our plan this episode for episode 26 um, we are excited to talk about Banned Books Week, which takes place in September, uh, the week of September 18th to September 24th. So we have a few topics around that that we're going to discuss. Um, but before we jump into that, we wanted to do an icebreaker. And um, one of the kind of recurring icebreakers that we've done on this show is Would You Rather Literary Edition? So we have a lot of fun with that. We wanted to do another installment of that and kind of talk about some things that um, have to do with books and reading and things we we like and we don't and you'll get it once we get into it so you two ready for that yep yep cool all right so the first question would you rather lose the ability to read any new books or the ability to reread books you've already read i'm gonna call on julia to go first uh let's see probably i'd rather lose the ability to reread books that i've already read interesting why because there's so many more new things coming out that i will also like that's fair very valid Megan, how about you? I was going to say the same thing. Um, I know I've mentioned... And then you changed your mind. No. I've, <laughs> I, my, my answer is still I would rather lose the ability to reread any books. Even though I've said in the past that I have a hard time remembering um, like major details of books if I read them too quickly. But I, I never forget whether I liked it or not. So um, as long as I remember I enjoyed a book... That's enough for me. I don't necessarily have to reread it. There are some books I, I would be sad if I could never read The Unicorn Chronicles again, but um, hey, he is re-releasing them, so loophole. Technically, yeah. Yeah, I got to find those loopholes. There's yeah. yeah, there's new new chapters, so yeah. it counts. And does and this, so question, would this include new printed editions? Like if there's a new version of something, could you reread that? I feel you should be able to. Okay. Because usually they come out with either a new something. Yeah, yeah like a something new, new about it. Or a new forward or... New illustrations. A new, yeah, or like a new like new anniversary content. message from someone or... Yeah, I'm, I'm totally on board with this. I was torn, but with this loophole in mind, I definitely would choose the same as, as the both of you. Because most welcome. of the things that I would reread, yeah, I know. I'm glad we talked about this. I feel a lot better. And, and I think that, because <laughs> I, I agree, there's things that I would be sad if I could never revisit. Uh, but if most of those things are pretty, pretty well established, I mean, with the exception of Unicorn Chronicles, but it it's great that he's got this. Uh, you know, this following and this passion around the story. So I, I think that um, 
the ability to to read an, a new version of the same story or just a new printed version kind of sa- would satisfy that. And I agree. I think that um, not being able to read anything new would be much more of a sacrifice than not being able to go back and reread something that I've already read. Yeah. So as typically happens, we are all in lockstep on this. <laughs> yep. Um, all right. So next question, would you rather be in a fantasy book or a science fiction book? I'm going to have Megan answer this one first. Fantasy, obviously, because magic. <laughs> yep. What else What else needs to be said? How about you, Julia? Fantasy, because usually science fiction, I'm not smart enough for science fiction, so. False. Fantasy. Okay, well, fantasy is a good preference to have, but I highly disagree, aggressively disagree with you not being smart enough for science fiction. I agree with Katie. It's my answer. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry for trying to be supportive. You should be. (laughs) (laughs) Never make that mistake again. I might. Sorry, in in advance. Um, I definitely agree. I would rather be in fantasy as well. Uh, for the magic, for the whimsy. And science fiction tends to be, I mean, I guess they can both tend to be pretty violent. I wouldn't say that fantasy is any less violent than science fiction, but it depends on the story. Most science fiction stories are a little bit more adult, maybe. So maybe there's more violence. And it's like impersonal violence. Like you get shot down in a spaceship as opposed to like hand-to-hand combat with a sword. That's much more honorable death. I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm reaching a little bit. (laughs) Also, I just don't have a lot of desire to go into space. And a lot of science fiction takes place in space. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating, but I it, the vastness of that would would also be terrifying to me. So I I agree. I think we're again yet uh, yet again all on the same page. Shocker. All right, the next question. I'll take this one first. Would you rather? And I think we're all going to be on the same page on this one too. Would you rather read by a fireplace or on the beach? I would definitely rather read by a fireplace. Uh, I have very white skin and the beach is not (laughs) my favorite place in the world um i I do enjoy the beach but to sit and read for a really long period of time i would need a really good umbrella or just all the zinc oxide in the world anybody disagree no i agree however i have in my life, I have much more experience reading on the beach than I do in front of a fireplace because in California, we don't do a whole lot of burning fires for pleasure. Um, but I have read on the beach when I go camping with my friend like many, many times. Um, but if I could choose, it would still be by the fire. Okay. Julia? <sighs> Here's the thing. She picks neither. (laughs) (laughs) Is the fireplace turned off? Because I hate fireplaces. Unpopular opinion. I hate them. I hate them. It doesn't specify. 
<laughs> so if it's turned to off, more, great. But yep. maybe it's, if it's turned off. I love the <laughs> So you're reading by the fireplace, but no fire like is there's going. A switch. No fire. I guess there are some switches for some fireplaces, but. No fire for me, please. <laughs> How about like like we have it at mom and dad's house where there's candles lit in the fireplace as opposed to a log burning? I can do that, but okay. it's still a waste of space. Where does this come from? Like why? What? What? It, what drives this rage? I don't like the heat. Okay. <laughs> well, and simple as that. You, you like even and, in, even in the winter time when it's like nope, around the nope. holidays, you're you're still a nope. no, a hard pass on. I hate them. <laughs> okay. Well, this is something I did not know about you. I'm glad to now know it. I will be very careful not to trigger you in the future. I just don't like them. Okay. I can't stand them. Nope. And I don't like sand in my toes. <laughs> or, or shoes. Or other places. Or, <laughs> or hands. I know I hate sand too. Okay, so and... you're like an opt-out of this question altogether. How about we ask Julia, where do you prefer to read? Where's What's your favorite place to read? If I'm going to read outside, it's going to be under a tree with the heaviest shade mm-hmm. you can find. Good if call. I'm going to read inside, either probably on my bed. Okay. Good call. We're also bathtub readers. Oh, yes. Yes. That's it's another good place. All three of us, I know we enjoy that. All right. That, that spurred some conversation I did not expect. That was a good question. That one went deep. Okay. Last one. And whoever has the first, whoever feels the strongest can just shout out. I won't call on anybody. Would you rather read only series or only standalone novels? I would rather read only standalone novels because I have commitment issues when it comes to books. (laughs) I don't want to have to commit to a whole series oftentimes. Not that I won't read a whole series, but a lot of the times I get... Yeah. Yeah. I stop after the first one anyway, so. I don't know if I believe that about you. At least lately. So many series. At least in the last few years as an adult reader. I loved series as an adolescent reader. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Young readers love a series. Yeah. Eh, I don't don't have a huge preference. But if I do start a series, I'm going to finish it, even if I don't like it. Well, I think I would say standalone just for the pure reason of if you say series only, I'm pretty sure it cuts out a lot of nonfiction. So you wouldn't, you'd be removing like an entire genre of, of books that you could read almost. There's not a ton. I mean, I'm sure there, there definitely are series within the genre, but yeah, I think you'd be I think you'd be limiting yourself much more if you said you were only going to read series as opposed to only standalone. Yeah. But that would mean you could never reread things like Harry Potter or the Unicorn Chronicles, which would also be sad. So that kind of ties back to the first question. Don't make me choose. But also this is hypothetical. It's not real. You're it not is. tying yourself in. Very true. For real right. No, I'm 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 going to hold you both to your answers. <laughs> Sorry. 
I did not agree <laughs> sorry, to that. Sorry, not sorry. Did not agree to that. All right. Are we ready to talk about banned books? Absolutely. Okay. So we've been talking about doing this this subject for this month for a while now, and there's a couple different experiences that we've had that have kind of led us to to want to talk about this. Um, let me first jump into what Banned Book Books Week is. It's an annual event, and it celebrates the freedom to read. Uh, it was launched in 1982 in response to a sudden surge in the number of challenges to books in schools, bookstores, and libraries. And it's typically held during the last week of September, highlights the value of free and open access to information, and it brings together the entire book community, including librarians, booksellers, publishers, journalists, teachers, and readers of all types. And it's in shared support of the freedom to seek and express ideas, even those some consider unorthodox or unpopular. And this this year, 2022, it will be held September 18th to the 24th. And the theme of this year's event is Books Unite Us, Censorship Divides Us, which I think is a really great sentiment. Um, there's so many things in this world, in in our current climate, that find ways to divide us as, as people, as humans. And, um, I think books are one of the things that should bring us together. So I I think that's a really great, um, really great sentiment and and theme for this year. Um, there's a lot of information. I want to point anyone who's interested in learning more to, um, bandbooksweek.org. That's the official site for Band Books Week. So if there's information you'd like to to look up or, you know, events that you'd like to participate in, um, head, head over to that website because there's, there's a lot of good information there. <clears throat> All right. So I want to talk about uh, what led us to, to wanting to, to have this topic on our show. Um, the first thing that we experienced was a a live stream event through the Sacramento Public Library. And they have a series of events of talks that they call that are called Let's Talk About It. Um, and it, it's Let's Talk About Blank. So this was Let's Talk About Banned Books. And there was uh, a really great panel that was brought together that included a librarian with the Sacramento Public Library, uh, a, a teacher, an author whose books have been banned, and a student that all got together uh, on this panel to talk about the effect of banned books within those different realms. Um, and the first thing I wanted to ask both of you, I, we all watched it and, and rewatched it because it originally was held a, a, a couple of months ago, actually. So we kind of refreshed, Julie and I had watched it originally and then refreshed our memories on it. And I specifically wanted to ask the two of you, you know, what were some of your your big takeaways from the talk um, coming from the perspective of a librarian and an English teacher? Um, I had a couple um, just kind of tidbits and I didn't write down who said them. Um, but the first one that I wrote down was that banning books is also banning the communities that they represent. So um it's not necessarily, and this was another point that somebody made, that when you ban a book, you're not really 
able to keep it out of everyone's hands because anyone who has access to purchasing it on Amazon still has access. So you're really only banning it from the marginalized communities who might not be able to purchase it somewhere because if you're banning it, really, it means you're taking it out of the libraries and out of schools. Um, So I thought that was a really interesting thought. Yeah, I agree. That was that was a kind of an eye-opening thing. I think they went as far to refer to it as as class warfare. Um the idea of of banning books and j- just to give a little more background on why they they even brought this topic similar to 1982 when there was a sudden surge seen in the number of challenges to books that's been happening over the last couple of years. There's been a pretty significant increase in the number of books that people are attempting to ban, uh, which drives some concern is, is a dangerous idea when we're talking about censorship and, and limiting access to information, um, especially the, based on that point that you just brought up, Megan, it, it, it's not, it's lim- it limits information to those marginalized people more than anything else. And that's, that's really unfair. <laughs> yeah. So, like this might yeah. sound st- stereotypical, but when you think of somebody or when I think of somebody who's wanting to ban a book, I picture a very conservative, white, affluent person trying to protect their white, affluent children from being exposed to things that they don't think is appropriate. And really what ends up happening is that they keep the children who might be able to see themselves in these books and relate to things from these books. They're keeping them from having access to it. Because the white yeah. the white kids, if they hear, oh, I mean, this is again, this is stereotypical, not across the board. But if the white kids hear, oh, this book is banned, well, I can just go order it on Amazon anyway. Yeah, that part um, struck me too, and also kind of you can kind of talk about the difference between a public library and a school library in that sense as well, because. Books get challenged in both places. Um, a lot of the times, books that are challenged in the library, um, the person isn't necessarily asking or expecting it to be removed from the library. They're, at, at least from the instances in my library system that I've heard about books being challenged, it is a patron wanting it to be recategorized into mm-hmm. another section of the library. Um, so, which sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but in a school library, if you're in an elementary school, there's no other section to put it in. Mm -hmm. Like you can't just move it on, move it to to YA or adult so that the, the kids aren't getting, aren't coming into contact with these books. Um, but yeah, and um, I believe the public librarian that was on that um, program, how did he put it? He said that public libraries are different because we're trying to create a collection for an entire community. Mm-hmm. So like one book doesn't work for somebody else, but there's there's a reader out there that needs to see that material mm-hmm. and needs to have access to that material. Yeah, like he said, it's and, not just about protecting the parents' rights, it's about protecting the children's rights too. And the children, mm-hmm. like there is no limit on the age for freedom of right. 
speech, freedom of expression. I don't remember. In public libraries, we're not we're not acting as any kind of parental entity, Mm -hmm. whereas in a school library, you kind of are like when they are at school. The staff at the school is working as. What's the word I'm looking for? What in local parentis was that? Is that how we put it? How they said it? Yeah, that was how he put it. Like they are responsible for those children. That is not the case in the public library. We have um, we have to make a collection that works for the whole community, not just one or two people. Mm-hmm. Is that a preconceived notion that you find some people have? You know, they they think that library, like public libraries are maybe an extension of schools and they take their kids there and expect certain things for sure yeah not even before before covid and everything and i don't know the library that i was working in has not gotten back to their regular after school crowd granted i i got a promotion and i'm not in a branch anymore so i don't know what's going on this school year but the last couple school years we did not have an after school crowd a because our hours changed so it made it harder for parents to just say go to the library after school. We'll, we'll pick you up at dinner time. So we used to have just kids running around unsupervised. And yeah, I think a lot of parents do have that conception thinking, well, we're, we're watching their children. We're, li- librarians are not watching kids. Because again, is not for child care. It's not daycare. Exactly. No. We're, it's not their Public service announcement. Yeah, it's not there to keep an eye on your children. Like we have a responsibility to the entire community to serve the entire community. And this is going to sound harsh, but if there is a fifth grader that is causing a commotion and is not acting in a way that is following the patron policy conduct, that child will be asked to leave for the day. And it has happened. (laughs) I don't think that's harsh. I think that is reasonable. Yeah. No, I'm sure I'm sure that that happens and it's not that libraries aren't a safe place. Right. But it's but to your point Julia, it's that's not the job and the that responsibility of the, the librarian. The function the function right. of the public library. It's to provide yeah. equal and e- equitable free access yep. to to exactly. everyone. And and that was a big thing that was focused on by the librarian on the panel during this discussion and Julia I wanted to ask you specifically about this because I know this was something at a certain point in your career that that you were responsible for he talked about if there is an audience of one it's his responsibility to make sure that there is access to that content in the public library as as much as he can um and I know that for for a certain period of time you were responsible for purchasing and, and selecting content for uh, the the children's section of your library, and I just was interested in hearing you talk a little bit about your approach to that. Uh, well, I still do collection development for my library system. Um, I purchase the digital materials for the the children's collection. Um, I will say, when I was actively doing collection maintenance on 
my branches library on my branches library collection it definitely differs from branch to branch because every branch has a different community every branch like aside from the really popular things like there's going to be a different kind of material that every branch wants to see like in my branch we had an african-american collection is the only branch that had an african-american collection and that was an opening day collection that was something that the community said that they wanted so i had to make sure as best as i could it was something that i had to throughout the years figure out how to do myself because there was it was not covered in our collection policy um I had to make sure that I was a getting rid of the things that needed that were outdated and b I was finding things that were relevant to the community and to that collection to be added in um and it ebbed and flowed throughout the years that I was there but towards the end I finally had the support from my manager and a little bit from our collection development um, department to actually make it so that I was getting new materials in there. Um, but the librarian on that panel, he was more talking about doing it from like the, the top level. So he was probably in their like administration department and working on the collection development for all the branches, which again is different. Um, so the way we do, do it in my library, each branch that has a friends group, um, they give a certain amount of money every month and the library, the librarians at each branch get to pick what they want to replace in their collection. Um, and so those librarians know their collection best and can figure out what is still relevant to the community, what needs to be replaced, and um, can also make requests as to what what they need if it's something new if that makes sense yeah it does and, and that gets into a little bit of you know he talked about the weeding process as well which mm -hmm. uh, I think you've had some experience into and um, you know what goes into what, what criteria goes into deciding whether something gets removed and uh, he he said that sometimes that comes down to condition and mm -hmm. like you said, if it's if it's well loved and well used, it's something that would likely be replaced. Um, or if it's something that has been checked out once in four years, maybe there's a better version of that, or it's just not something that people are interested in and mm -hmm. can be removed completely. Um, what other criteria goes into deciding if something's going to be taken out of the collection? Well, especially for certain sections in nonfiction, especially um, like science books or not so much history books because that doesn't change too often, um, but science, health, like those kinds of things need to be looked at and um, refreshed fairly frequently because things change and like, I don't know if you know, but Pluto's not a planet anymore, I don't think. No, it's kind of sad. So, like, yeah, so any books that mention Pluto as being a planet, obviously, we need to update that section. Mm -hmm. 
And have you ever been involved in the challenging of a book or know about the process behind that? Is that anything that you've, it's been within your realm of responsibility? That was something that was talked about quite a bit. The process of that is you have to, as a, as a librarian uh, or as, as someone who, even a teacher, someone who's, who's having a book that is, is being provided or, or access allowed to challenged by someone, you have to assess that challenge, assuming that it's being made in good faith. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been part of that process or? Not the specific part of the process. I have a couple of times. Trying to think there's, there's two times that a patron has come up to me and kind of questioned the content in a book. Um, don't think either of them turned into official challenges, but it was a, one of them was I don't remember the exact book, but it was in the nonfiction section, and it was just like a book about um mythological creatures, just a whole book about all of these different creatures and a woman came up to me at the desk and said that she felt this book was too scary and it needed to be needed to be removed from the library. And I just kind of asked her questions and she said that it scared her daughter. And I told her, I was like, okay, well, I appreciate that you read this to know that this is not appropriate for your child. And that was my advice to her. Like, you should always look at what your daughter is reading. You know your daughter best. So if you know that something scares her, you can keep her away from that. Um, and I didn't ask her if she wanted to fill out a challenge form, but we had a conversation about it. And I just, what I said, I told her that it's a it's a good practice for her to to if she's worried about something that her daughter's reading to pre-read it before she gives it to her because she'll know best if that's going to sit well with her daughter or not. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the times the patron just wants to be heard. And just like one of the panelists said that you go into it with thinking that they have good intentions. Um, but when there is a book that is formally challenged, it gets sent to administration and then a group of librarians review it, whether it's going to be moved to a different section of the library or it's going to be removed or if it's just going to stay in place. Um, but that is always the advice we give is to if you're a parent and you're worried about something that your child is reading, just look through it first. Like that'll, you're going to know your, your child best. Yeah. That kind of leads me to the other big takeaway that I had, which is that we should be listening to kids more about what they're ready to read and not just saying, oh, well, I don't think you're ready for this. Let's take it out of your the realm of possibility for you to even read. Um, and we should more be equipping them with the skills on how to determine whether they're ready to read something or not. I mean, I think about us and when we had our Roald Dahl episode and we were talking about when we read his books as children, like we didn't think there was anything wrong with the type of violence that was in those books. But now as adults, we're like, ooh, huh. 
And I almost wonder if as children, like we have a, we naturally have a filter when we're, when, when we read that says, oh, okay, I'm not quite grasping what this really means. So I'm just taking away the big picture. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And I I think not having all of the the context and, and life experience to to realize that this isn't just slapstick comedy violence is um is definitely a kid experience N- and not all kids i'm sure there's some kids that that find that disturbing um you know it just it depends on their perspective and what they've been through in their life how they are they're going to respond to that but i i think that's a really great point and that a really great point that was made in the panel too that you know, just assuming that a kid is not ready for something or um, shouldn't be exposed to something is, mm-hmm. you know, a conversation should be had first. Yeah, I mean um, the the student panelist that was on there, I didn't I didn't catch what grade she was in, but I assumed she was she's either in high school. okay. Um, but she said that in a previous year, a librarian had given her Slaughterhouse Five, and I was like, oh, I would not yeah. have been ready for. I wasn't ready for Slaughterhouse Five when we read it last year so like i would not have been ready or i don't know maybe i would have read it like i read roald Dahl, and i just would have taken away the big pictures and not understood some of the stuff and been like that's okay everyone's got a different threshold for everything yeah yeah i think i think that's a great which is why it's so dangerous to like ban books outright Mm -hmm. yeah yeah there was a lot of really great discussion around and and megan i was going to come to you and, and ask um, before I jump into that, have you ever had that happen in your classroom where there's a, a book that you are either adding to the curriculum or something that's in your class library or even something that's in your school library that maybe isn't you know part of your, your direct classroom that you know of or had experience with that a parent had challenged and, and how did that play out? No, I've been lucky. I've never had that experience. And my class library gets utilized quite a bit by my students, um, something I'm kind of proud of. But no, I've never, like, I've preemptively pulled things before. Um, Specifically, there's this one book called The Hunger Pains that I think was like a, what's the word? Like something that's meant to be ironic. Satire? satire it was a satire of the hunger games thank you and i found kids i never read it myself i never pre-read it i think it was a cast off from your library julia or mom's library something that got weeded and was given to me and i never pre-read it but i was finding kids like pulling it off the shelf and like going to one specific page and like showing all the kids in their group and then giggling for a while and I never found out what that was because I didn't really want to know because usually it was a seventh grade boy finding something and I don't want to know what they giggle at so um, I ended up pulling that just because it was causing a distraction and I don't think any kid actually finally read it from cover to cover I think they just found something to laugh at which was probably something highly inappropriate Mm mm-hmm Um, But other than that, if I read something and it has, like, explicit drug usage, I'll usually not put that on my shelf just because I don't want to deal with that being an issue. So that's usually the only – or if there's, like, an explicit sex scene, like, I will not 
Because I have mostly 7th graders, so 12 and 13 year olds, and yeah. So I, I will usually... Yeah, there's a big difference between a 7th and an 8th grade reader. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And I, I think, to your point, the, the kid will know what they're ready for, um, but it's probably a safer bet to give access to, to things that are, you know, things that you would feel safe talking about within your classroom you know you don't teach sex ed you teach Mm -hmm. english yeah so um, i think that's you know i think that's a a fair approach to have um but i guess i would ask you know if if you had a student who was interested in a book like that um that had that type of content and asked you you know maybe there there's someone who who really doesn't have access to or the ability to purchase things on amazon and and just and it doesn't have that privilege and they came to you asking saying hey i'm interested in maybe not something as extreme as like 50 shades of gray but you know something that is a story that has maybe a sex scene in it but they're interested in it for for particular reasons what would you how would you handle that um well i would say you're probably not going to find it at the school library or at my library so if you have a public library card you can find it there or if you don't have access to go to the public library, you can probably find it on the Libby app. However, you should talk to your parents before you start reading it. Solid approach. Because for my class, which I have mixed feelings about this too, but it's kind of a school policy. In order for them to get points for their grade for reading a book, they have to either take an AR quiz or do a book talk with me. But before they can do either one of those, they have to get a parent permission slip stating that the parent says they're ready to take this quiz they did finish this book so if they're gonna read 50 shades of gray they have to have that signed by a parent anyway um so if they're gonna read it without parent permission then they run that risk of well i won't get the points for it at the end but maybe they don't care about getting the points which that's up to them too i have a question for you katie because we've talked before about how you read pet cemetery at what 10 yeah something like that somewhere between 10 and 12 I have was you, pretty young have you ever reread it as an adult no that's not one that i've gone back to but i've i've read other stephen king books as an adult i'd be curious if you were to go back and read that book with the frame of mind of thinking what was my 10 year old self thinking while i was reading this hmm. like did i understand this part as it was written or did i imagine something different i'm, I'm just curious that would be an interesting exercise. I think that from what I remember, and I actually remember the story pretty well for it being, having read it so long ago, which which just tells me it was one of those very like formative moments as a reader that, you know, I, I knew that what I was reading was probably too scary for me, but it, that was part of what was exciting about it to me, that it was, you know, I was pushing myself beyond something that I had I had ever read before and the the concepts being introduced were were definitely scary um and I knew that and I was somewhat scared but not to the point that it like stuck with me or gave me nightmares or you know made me obviously I read a lot more you know going forward in my life so it was something I enjoyed 
um, something about the way the story was was set up because we read things like goosebumps and and all kinds of you know it it felt like an elevation of something like that the way the story was structured you know so I'd, I'd read things that were were scary and intense and it was kind of mysterious you know we we read I mean very different from Nancy Drew but I enjoyed mystery books um, as you're trying to figure out what's going on so I was kind of more wrapped up in those feelings than I think thinking about how scary it was or or letting letting that that part of it there was something about it that I was able to say, okay, this, this isn't real. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was more interested in the story and how it was crafted, but that would be an interesting thing to go back and revisit and see if I feel differently about it now. Maybe I'll do that at some point. Um, I want, I think this might be a good time for us to talk about what goes into, I mean, Julia has very well described from the library system perspective, what goes into um, how you challenge a book, um, but there's some specific criteria around what can constitute a challenge. Uh, Julia provided a really great article from 1982 from the Eureka Times Standard, and it was um, published in September, so with, I think it was in preparation for Band Book Week, and that's around when it started based on the history. Um, and it talks about what are some of the reasons that a book can be challenged. Uh, it includes things like, uh, so that the categories it provides, and I'm not sure if if this is if the if any if any of this has changed or um, evolved since 1982. It probably has, but at least at that time, the reasons that you could challenge a book were ethnic reasons, inappropriate for young readers. Um, objectionable language, obscenity, political reasons, pornography, cultural reasons, or literary standards. Oh, and ethical reasons. Um, so that, that casts a pretty wide net. There's a pretty much almost anything could fit into any of those categories, So there's really, I wasn't able to find an official list of banned books. And I imagine that that's because there's just been so many challenges that it's impossible to keep that type of a list. Um, But I, one of the things that really stood out to me uh, that, that was said during the, the, the panel discussion was by the, the public librarian. And he talked about um, the, the words obscenity and pornography being used very often uh, when things are being challenged and he didn't explicitly state it, but later on in the discussion, he made it clear what he was talking about. And he, he just kind of made a point that the existence of a person does not constitute obscenity or, or pornography. And then later in the discussion, he said that of the of the challenges that he's seen, and and again, there's been an uptick in the la- in recent years. He said eight to nine out of ten of them are because of the existence of LGBTQ plus characters in the story. Just the exist the mere existence of them um, is is a big uh, a big reason for for challenge that people challenge books. And and actually, the the one of the other panelists that we haven't really talked about yet was um, Dr. Gail Pittman who um, was brought on 
because her to to kind of talk about how one of her books, uh, several of her books, but the main one that is has been challenged and banned the most is called This Day in June, and it was her uh, debut picture album, and it's it's about um it's about a pride parade, um, and she told the story about how she found out that it was being it was being banned. Someone told her on Twitter that this was happening. And the story that was being told was that it was a woman in a library who was with her daughter and the daughter plucked her book off of the shelf and opened it up and, and said, mommy, why are these two men kissing? And the, you know, the woman was not ready to talk about that with her daughter and and was outraged that this was even available to her. And so she challenged it. But the truth was, that this this woman was a um, a wife of a politician, and there was particular agenda that they were trying to push, and that's part of the disturbing piece of this is that about forty percent of challenges and attempts to ban books over the last recent last couple of years are coming from legislators and lawmakers that are doing this to to limit access to to certain ideas and concepts. Um, which is kind of a scary thing. And I just, I wanted to to talk about that with the two of you and get your thoughts on what were some of the things that that brought up in you when that, that discussion was being had? I felt like it, it made me angry, obviously. Um, but I also felt like it was kind of a loophole for politicians because banning a book doesn't necessarily create any type of change. Like we've said, people can still find access to that book. <clears throat> and sometimes when you ban a book, it makes it even more popular. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so it felt almost like a cop-out for them rather than creating real legislative change to say, hey, this is what my platform's going to be. I don't know. I don't, yeah, I don't it's, know. Yeah, it's like a... Sense. No, it totally does. It's like a here. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm showing you. I don't support, even though this doesn't really do anything other than show you what I don't like. Which, I yeah, I agree. That's that's it's very it's very much pandering to the base. Yeah, and I I think it goes back to to, to something you said at the very beginning of our discussion, Megan, about. Um, there's something to be said about representation and a young reader being able to see themselves within the pages of what they're reading and, and really being able to, to understand like the story is for everyone, but this story really sees me. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's something about having that experience and feeling that connection and knowing that there's community for you and there's, you know, there, there's, there's a story about you is a really special feeling to have as, especially as a young reader. Um, and one thing that they didn't cover during this discussion or didn't bring up, but, but was a thought that I had, and I wanted to see what you guys thought, um, is that there is, and, and the positive piece of this is there, there is so much more content like that out there now, like, and, and there's, there's more and more each day. Um, there's, there's more access to it. There's more, uh, representation. There's more people of color creating, there's more LGBTQ plus people creating and actually getting their work published. 
And I'm wondering if that could be lending itself to the uptick in the number of challenges just because of the sheer volume of content that's out there now. It's possible, but I still kind of feel like it's just a performative way for politicians to say, hey, I'm doing something, I'm making a change, when really mm-hmm. they're not. Yeah, but again, remember, it's 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 not all of the challenges. It's about 40% of the challenges is coming from from that those types of people. So 60% of it is still probably coming from individuals just in the communities that maybe are doing it in response to the things that they're seeing lawmakers do or just for their based on their own, um, you know, things that they they don't want either their kids exposed to or an idea or a concept that they just they don't want to be perpetuated for whatever reason. Um, You know, whether that be I'm not even going to go down the route of what that is, because it it could be any reason why why someone is offended by something. Um, And you you have the right to be offended by something. I would never tell someone that they couldn't be offended by something. Um, And I think that what the, the educator on the panel talked about when it came to experience, she's experiences she has had in, in the classroom is that she's always been able to have a good conversation when that challenge is happening at the individual level. Like if it's, if it's a parent saying, I don't want my child reading this, there's usually the ability to have a dialogue about it, understand why and come to a solution for that, that parent and their child. The problem comes when a parent says, I don't want any student reading this. I don't want, I don't want any of the hundreds of students in the school having any sort of access or exposure to this. And that's a much more difficult conversation um, because then you really are, it's, you're not just making the choice for your kid, you're, you're dictating and, and stifling access to information for a larger group of people. With that said, why don't we all talk about what banned books we plan on reading this year? Yeah, we can do that. Um, anybody want to start? I'll I'll start because I actually, I kind of talked about this with Julia yesterday, but I'm sure there are many, many, many banned books that I've already read and just didn't realize that they were banned um, because I have no shortage of access to, to books, um, thankfully. Um, but I actually just started reading a book that I've wanted to read for a really long time. Um, it's called Esperanza Rising by Pam Munoz Ryan. Um, and it, I was kind of curious cause I was like, well, we're doing this episode. I wonder if this has ever been banned. So I Googled it and it has in fact, at least been challenged. I believe in some places it was banned, um, because the book is intended for nine to 12 year olds, that age band. Um, and the reason that it was being banned is because they felt the people that were requesting it to be banned felt that it, uh, glorified illegal immigration I guess, because uh, the main character, Esperanza, um, her father is killed in the, the early early chapters, like in chapter one or two. So it's not a spoiler. Um, and her mom and her basically have to go on the run to, to be safe from her evil uncle, I guess, for lack of a better term. But um, one of the points in an article that I was reading about it was that they the people who wanted it banned felt that it was inappropriate for that age range. However, the main character is like 
10 or 11. So, and I'm sure there are children in Mexico who are even younger than that, who are actually experiencing that trauma. Um, And it banning it from an age, a particular age range is limiting children from being able to learn how to empathize over that. So that's what I'm reading. Yeah, that's a really interesting read. And I'm I'm excited to hear your thoughts on it once you've gotten through that. It's really good so far. Awesome. Julia, what are you going to read? I am in the process of reading The Diary of a Young Girl by Anne Frank, which is considered a classic, but um, as recently as this year, it has been banned by a school district in Texas because um, somebody felt that when she was writing about her sexuality and coming into her sexuality and like all these different things she was experiencing and feeling and thinking, they felt it was pornographic and that it should not be in schools. Um, And I have gotten to that part. I don't know if there's more. I haven't finished it. Um, And I could see maybe like a young, young reader, like in elementary school, this would not be appropriate, but eighth grade and above, I think it would be fine. Um, But again, it comes down, I think it's, it should be on the parents to decide what's appropriate for their children and not everybody else's. It's my thinking. I think that's a very personal choice. Um, so the book that I chose to read and have, have just barely started reading is Uncle Tom's Cabin. It's one that I've, I've never read and never had, you know, assigned to read in school. Um, and I, I decided that I was going to read it because it, it came up a lot on the panel discussion that we watched. Um, and in addition to that, on, on our previous episode, chapter 25, we talked about a trip that, that Megan and I took back east. And we hadn't planned on visiting Harriet Beecher Stowe's home and, and learning about Uncle, like the, the genesis of Uncle Tom's Cabin and how it came to be. Uh, but it just kind of happened to fall into our, our travel plan. So that made me even more excited to read it. And I actually purchased it at Harriet Beecher Stowe's home. Um, and as I was doing some research on it, it, it's actually thought to be the the original like banned book, like the idea of book, the history of books being banned is, is in America is thought to stem back to when this book was written and published in 1852. Um, and it was banned in the South preceding the Civil War for holding pro-abolitionist views and arousing debates on slavery is, is why it, it was banned. There were a lot of people that were very threatened by these ideas that were being presented. And a lot of what we learned during our, our visit to Harriet Beecher Stowe's home was even even further fascinating, um, you know, the discussion around the the criticism that this book has gotten both from, you know, the those um, individuals who who supported slavery, um, but also by uh, African-American critics who believe that the characters, the way that they're portrayed are oversimplified and stereotypical. Um, and we know that, you know, calling someone an uncle Tom is still considered an insult today uh, because of the, the portrayal of that character. So just the fact that it was um, such a, such an important book in history, but also 
that it there's it's very flawed and imperfect in in the way that it was received um, is fascinating to me. So I'm I'm interested in in getting through that. Well, thank you both for having this really robust discussion with me on banned books. I was really fascinated in getting both of your perspectives as a librarian and as a teacher, because um, it's something that definitely enters into your professional realm. And uh, thank you for sharing your experiences with that and for, for talking about banned books with me. Um, until next time, read, share, and repeat. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. We read banned books. <laughs> yep. That brings us to a close on this chapter of Sibling Library. Thank you for listening. Until next time, let's read, share, and repeat. <laughs>